I have a question for you. Do, you haven't planted your tomatoes yet, have you, or have you? I, I so yes and no. Um, my tomatoes are still very happily living in the uh, Metro Rack greenhouse that I built for them in my basement. They yes. are yearning to go outside. They are getting to be tall enough that I'm a little worried about them. Oh. Kayla and I decided late to try to do a garden, so ours are still sprouting downstairs. Um, uh, because we, uh, I, I was aware, you know, I, even when I was visited you, you had yours going yeah. in your, uh, in your thing. So, uh, you know, part of me was aware of that, but I just thought it was a Ben thing, <laughs> not a, like a good gardening thing. Um, and so then when we were like, we got some seeds and we we're like, oh, we we have to wait until no more frost, to, uh, to put these in the ground. And then, uh, I forget who it was. It was like, well, you're not going to get any tomatoes if you, you know, you, yeah. you get tomato plants, you don't get tomatoes. Uh, to plant in your garden. I was like, oh, so anyway, we uh, we Googled some things and we got it going like um, almost a week ago, I think now. But we do have some sprouts, but it's the hibiscus. It's not the um, tomatoes yet, I don't think. So we'll see if we end up with anything. I don't know. It's an experiment for us this year. But I didn't know if you'd put yours in the ground because it could snow tomorrow. It certainly could. A million years ago, at my very first job, my boss realized that I had some sort of a natural talent and for some reason, a desire to keep working in restaurants. And he took me aside and he said, Randall, you could be really good at this, and you could go far if you could just learn to keep your mouth shut. If you're listening to this, you'll know I took part of that advice. Uh, and you know what? Let's start there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to In the Weeds with Ben Randall. I'm Ben Randall. And I'm Stephen Cadwell. And so, in as much as we constantly talk about weather on this show, because Steve and I have reached an age where we talk about the weather... <laughs> uh, I do have, I planted those tomato seeds a month ago, maybe, maybe a little longer ago. And here's the thing about these. So I went online and I went to, uh, the Seed Savers Exchange, which is, uh, an outfit that, uh, manages and sort of, uh, curates is the wrong word, shepherds. Uh, heirloom varieties of, of plants, right? To make sure that they're still going to be around. So I bought five or six different kinds of tomatoes that I'd never heard of before. And that's a lie. I want to say four types that I had never heard of before, but I also wanted to grow San Marzano's, which are great for tomato sauce, pizza sauce, marinara, that kind of thing. Because I'm in this mode now where I'm like, you know what? I buy a lot of stuff. What if I started making stuff instead? And I had never grown any of these tomatoes before, so I didn't really want to just, like, huck them in the ground and see what happened. Like, I wanted to get them to, <laughs> like, when you go to a hardware store or a garden center and you buy the tomato plants where they're like, you can put these right in the ground. I wanted to get my plants to that stage in the house and then put them in the ground. So, like you saw, I built a six-foot-tall metro rack and I bought this, like, canvas cover that zips up that's clear in the front. And I made a tiny little greenhouse and I bought some plant lights and whatever. And so I have... Five varieties of tomatoes and two bell peppers, plus oregano, basil, oh, this is cool, I haven't told you about this yet, and black zucchini, which is another heirloom varietal, as well as some spicy peppers. I've got jalapenos and um, scotch bonnets. But I learned a thing that I totally should have learned long before I was in my very early 40s, which is... You know when you have a head of garlic sitting on your counter for a little too long and it starts to send out green shoots? Uh -huh. Fucking plant them. 
<laughs> I have eight. I have a whole head of garlic that went to seed, essentially. Not went to seed, but started sprouting. I have eight garlic plants growing in there now. And not free, but like I bought a head of garlic and I didn't use it. And now I'm going to grow eight more heads of garlic, which is wild. Nice. So does the one clove uh, sprout? Is it, will you just get one head from one garlic plant? Yes, I believe so. I've never grown okay. garlic before. Yeah. Um, I don't know where garlic normally grows either. Does that grow in, uh, is it our our zone? Yeah, yeah, garlic's <laughs> going to do just fine here. What I'm a little worried about, though, because like you noted earlier, today it's Sunday, ladies and gentlemen, April 16th? Yeah. And in Chicago, for the last like six, eight days now, it's been it, between 68 degrees and like 85 degrees, right? Tomorrow it might snow. Because Chicago, yeah. right? Like, yeah, this is probably being influenced by global climate change and all that sort of thing. But also, Chicago just does this shit, right? This is just what we do here. Whatever. So, uh, I'm very glad that I did not put my plants out this past week when I was on vacation. Yeah. Which I had tons of time to do, but I was like, mm, I don't trust you, Chicago. I really don't. Yeah. Um, and that's that's one of the reasons why I, w I we also didn't because I thought, well, I can, I'll just plant them in the ground and we'll see. But then uh, everywhere was like, no, you want to wait until however you know long after the last frost or before the last frost or whatever. Um, and then one of the guys in the uh, improv troupe I've gotten connected to measures snow or or I think currently even still does or as a past job would measure snow for the uh, weather service. Um, and, uh, the last, last weekend when we met, he's like, uh, yeah, as you guys know, um, the, uh, uh, or he says, you know, I, I used to do this job or I have this job and, um, we could get some snowfall until, you know, into, uh, May even. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. And then I looked cause it, you can, there's a website that tracks like frost dates, average last frost dates for, um, the, the whatever area you're in. And so you just put put in your zip code and it will tell you and i'm like oh wow i've got i've got a few weeks yet before i could safely put seeds in the ground if i'm going to grow from seed outside so we better get these started if we want any fruit this year so um and i found so kayla and i are doing the budget version and this was an experiment for us this year so what we did is we bought um so, uh, a set of seeds that to make salsa right right, so right. salsa garden we yeah. got it yeah we got a bunch of different peppers and some tomatoes and whatever and also check out wherever you are listener dear listener check your library here in niles michigan they have a seed library Ooh. so we went we got a couple different kinds of tomatoes and we got some hibiscus seeds as well just the flowers not uh, we can't make tea with it it's the wrong kind of hibiscus but um we got and we we didn't even need a library card although i have one you just go in there and go to the seed garden and they give them to you for free um now, the hibiscus must be a little more uh, prolific in terms of their seeding because that package of seeds just had oodles of seeds in it. Um, the t we got some zucchini and some tomato seeds as well. And I think each one of those packets had the zucchini had three seeds <laughs> and the tomatoes, I think, each had four four little tomato seeds each. But, hey, you can't complain, right, because they're yeah. free from the library. So check your library out. Maybe they have something, too. And uh, our budget version is just on a table downstairs wrapped in an electric blanket underneath and around it. Mm -hmm. I've got a bunch of solo cups in some um, roasting pans. And with saran wrap on top with a uh, just a regular fluorescent light, not a grow light. Um, so it doesn't have the full spectrum, but it will still grow plants yeah. um, down close to it to try to generate a little heat on the top as well. So uh, I think we'll invest a little bit more next year and get a Metro rack because the guy that I was learning from on uh, um, 
learning the cheapo way to do stuff on uh, YouTube also had a Metro Rack um, with a lot more lights than what we have because we just got the one. And, um, yeah, uh, not as many or, or, or uh, the – I forget how many solo cups I put out, but it's amazing how quickly those trays fill up with – seeds yeah yeah well that and so i intentionally planted i want to say four of each of the varieties and then waited to see which ones were going to be the strongest got those down to two each and then planted them in larger pots and of those two i got the strongest of those and so i mean it's a it's it's attrition it's not evolution exactly but uh what I have now to put outside are what I believe to be the strongest plants. And that's one of the things so I've learned a ton of stuff. Again, mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, Steve. And <laughs> other shit I learned in school that's never going to fucking help me at all, right? So I've learned a number of things off the internet, but you've got to check your sources. You've got to get, you know, trust but verify, right? So you get a secondary yes. uh, source on it. Speaking of budget, it. I never put it together that when we did our composting, which we always did, and then shit would just, like, grow out of the compost. Well, that's because there's seeds that we put in with the compost. And even when we give the chickens things to eat, a lot of times those seeds will just pass. And then all of a sudden it'll be like, oh, look at all these butternut squashes that are growing in the chicken run or in the veranda. <laughs> and uh, never put it together that it's like, wait a minute, what I should be doing is not paying for seeds. We eat tons of bell peppers here at the house i could plant those seeds i have garlic that goes all sprouty i could plant that shit right so like the jalapenos that i'm growing i brought those seeds home from work because we were using jalapenos or something and we were taking the seeds out they're yeah. sprouting just fine you know so like yeah. these days one of the things that i'm trying to do really do like in addition to the recycling that we do and by the way municipal recycling is a scam but it makes me feel better uh in addition to like storing things in our fridge like leftovers in glass jars instead of having tupperware and uh plastic containers and stuff like that we're trying to reduce our waste as much as possible that'll help you financially too if you're like oh I, so i have an orange tree three avocados and a grapefruit tree that i've grown all from seeds here in the house that's all just stuff that i would have thrown away it's all just seeds and 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 avocado pits, right? Now, am I gonna like? Am I? Do I have an avocado and citrus empire going on? No. Talk to me <laughs> in another five years. Maybe I will. I don't know. I'm currently trying to sprout some lemon seeds as well. I don't even eat that much citrus, but like, I don't know. They're fun. They're they're very yeah. pretty plants. Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things I I saw, and I don't think um, anything I'm growing is like this, um, but but I also we we acquired some seeds, so it'd be real easy to um, you have to dry your tomato seeds, right? Um, scoop them out or get them out of your tomato and uh, let them let them uh, let them dry. If you're, the if you're gonna store them, goop off them, yeah, no, you can just straight throw those into some dirt, and they will sprout. Um, but if you're going to go wait, if you have to wait over winter, unless you yeah. have a place for them. Uh, anyway, um, but I was reading somewhere, I was like, uh, and it was telling me which tomato varieties, like, well, this one, um, you you can't just grow from a tomato because it won't grow true to type. Um, sure. So, uh, and I don't know, I mean, I think there's some corn that might be like that, but that's, some of it has to do with needing cross-pollination versus self-pollinating. Right. Um, so there's some normal biological reasons but also some of it might be uh M monsanto trickery yep in order to prevent you from being able to grow them yourself so i guess that's the one caveat there is you're more likely to get a plant that grows true to type if you're buying an organic tomato at the store 
and saving those seeds. Uh, just because you're right, it likely has not been messed with in such a way that, yeah, a company like Monsanto wants the farmers to have to buy seed corn from them every year. That's a subscription service-based profit model as opposed to yeah if we sell you some corn then you can just save some of it and plant it the next year that's not a good profit model for that company so of course they yeah. build in a redundancy like that where you can't do that right now if you get like those where you see the like goofy looking tomatoes that are you know red but they're kind of orange striped and there's yellow tomatoes and there's green ones and kind of purple ones and stuff and they're all in that bin at the grocery store i bet you anything all of those will grow just fine yeah, well, I mean, and something like a tomato, like, what does it hurt to try? And uh, yeah, um, even the ones that aren't growing necessarily true to type, does that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad tomato, right? Right. And you may have some issues with cross-pollination. You may have some issues with the plant not wanting to propagate itself, right? So you may have to have more than one of each of those plants. The ones that I have are self-pollinating, so it's fine. And we seem to have plenty of pollinators in the backyard of my new house, uh, including, you know, honeybees and uh, butterflies and stuff like that but we're also intentionally planting and this is I, I would love to give you all a guide on this but there are guides online that do a much better job than I do we're intentionally planting flowers uh, perennials and things like this that are native to our area because so many decorative plants out there are not right so if you get like Japanese boxwood which is these little this is a little round uh, bushes you see all over the place, not native to my part of Illinois, and they're not, they don't support any of the pollinator populations out there, right? So, like, it's just a, I mean, it's a plant, it's fine, but, like, butterflies can't eat it, there's not, it, it's not something that supports that, that, uh, biosystem, right? So we're intentionally planting things that do. Some of those things are kind of weird, right? Like, do I really <laughs> want to plant milkweed? No, it would be good, it's part of the Illinois... Uh, prairie system. I don't really want that in my front yard, though, right? So we're doing other things instead. My daughter loves marigolds, uh, which I just discovered is her favorite flower. She's 10. It may change. Who knows? But it's the flower <laughs> that she can most successfully draw, so it's her favorite. So we're going to plant a bunch of marigolds, which are great for pollinators. Nice. And uh, milkweed, correct me if I'm wrong, don't monarch butterflies like milkweed? They do. They love it. Yeah. Now, there's a house we walk by when I walk the dogs that I don't know if they planted it, but they let it grow um, intentionally, and and uh, I just remember seeing it. I had a couple little stalks of it growing in the bank in the front of my house that I weed whacked. <laughs> well, it can produce hay fever in certain people. It's not the primary one, which is goldenrod, I think. Like, goldenrod okay. really sets off hay fever in some people. However... Um, I, there's enough people who either mistake the two... Or react to both, or react to just one, that it's it's deemed a uh, weed, and people will take it out. Yeah. Uh, I, I tell you what, though, walking the dogs this morning, a lot of the trees, because of the heat, I think, are, are blooming, yep. the flowering trees. I think there's some flowering dogwood near me, or at least it's a white flower on a tree. Yep, a lot of honeysuckle um, in our area. And it was beautiful, and um, it was beautiful until the sinus pressure that was building in my head <laughs> prevented me from enjoying it. But now I'm back inside, and I'm feeling a lot better. But out there, I was like, oh, this is beautiful, and boy, howdy, is the pollen count high right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we were discussing this just last night because we built a – I have a, a solo stove, which is like a – it's the fanciest-ass garbage can fire you're ever going to see in your life super shiny stainless steel and it's built in such a way that there's like intentional airflow built into the the can and so um 
Sorry, I just I, I wasn't waving you away, Steve. You guys can't see this. We also have fruit flies in my house, so that's a that's a symptom of the way that I cook and the amount of plants we have in the house. And I'm trying to handle that problem, but it's complicated. Um, but we we you know have this solo stove and we had a fire last night and we were looking at the backyard, my wife and the kids and I. And if it was up to my wife, every square inch of the backyard would be flowering, fruit bearing plants that were beautiful with like a fountain and shit. And the kids are like, yeah, but the sprinkler part where we get to run through it and have, like, a legit backyard we can play in. What about that? So we're trying to figure out what to do. And <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, if you want to see the ongoing back and forth about that, once it stops snowing here in Chicago, best way to see pictures of the food that I make and the plants that I'm growing and all that, Chef Ben Randall on Instagram. We also have a, uh, a Facebook page and a Facebook group. And if you have anything, like, if you know how to get rid of fucking fruit flies... <laughs> in the weeds, WBR at gmail.com is the best way to get a hold of us for more long form kind of stuff. And Steve runs a website for us. In the weeds, WBR.com. Where you'll see, like, as we talk about mac and cheese today, you'll see the articles that we're referencing if you want to get more background information on that. However, it occurred to me this morning as I was looking at one of my avocados that now needs to go into such a large pot that when I move it out in the summer, moving it back in is going to be like a two man lift kind of thing. I might build a greenhouse in the backyard that'll be four seasons where because you can get them like you can get kits for these things that like crafty beaver hardware and things like this where they're not cheap but they come with panels that come out and you can put screens in over the summer so that you don't like roast the inside of it but one of the tricks that I saw is that if you dig down about six eight inches in the ground and then make that the level for your greenhouse it increases the temperature on the inside over the winter by like 30 degrees or something it's shocking oh, wow. how much of an increase in temperature you get just by submerging the thing a little bit because it's not sitting right at ground level so i should probably go online and find out how big these things are because if i had a tropical ass greenhouse in my backyard in chicago in like february that would be amazing <laughs> i could just go and just hang out in there <laughs> you know it would it would uh, it might solve some of the fruit fry pro fruit fry Ooh. fruit fly problems if they're uh, part of it's just all your all your plants in your little uh, metro rec uh, greenhouse and you definitely have a place for tomatoes. I imagine the trees at some point would outgrow that too though. Uh, possibly the thing about avocados and coffee you can deadhead them, which is where you take the top the highest bud and clip it, and then the tree goes out rather than up. And uh, I might have to start doing that with my avocados. They're actually really progressing more quickly than I thought they would. They are. They're big. They're big trees already. And it's only been, like, I I moved one avocado from the old house here. So that would have been last July. But the other ones I sprouted here. And they're already three feet tall. I mean, these are big oh, wow. plants. Yeah. And how long, if ever, will you get an avocado? Five an avocado? years. Five years oh. is what it takes for an avocado. So, I'm, yeah, I'm still, like, my son will be in college by the time I'm getting avocados, obviously. <laughs> hey, I'll send Which is him good. More for you. I, well, also that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I had one more thing to say about agriculture, but now I don't remember what it was. Herbs I always have trouble with. I'm not, I'm not sure why. But now that I have my dehydrator, I think the problem is quantity. So I always just have way too many herbs because there's no way. You buy that little, like, what is that, a yeah. two-ounce container of, of sage at the grocery store and you need, like, five leaves. Now what I do is I have this whole host of glass jars in my spice cabinet that are just herbs that I've dried with my dehydrator. And it turns out, man, that thing was about 180 bucks, which at the time I was like, well, that's a lot for a 
big hairdryer. But I don't throw stuff away. Like, herbs don't go bad in my house anymore. Because I just dehydrate them, throw them in the cupboard, and they're great. Yeah. Yeah. And... But uh, you have, you said you had trouble. You have trouble growing them, or you have trouble. I don't know how it is you get commercial herbs to stop going. So they always go way too tall, and then they fall over and die. Mainly, it's cilantro <laughs> and parsley. I think I have some sort of a trouble with with supporting them. I don't know if I'm not planting them deeply enough or what it is. So I have basil and I have oregano going right now, which are tougher. They're, they're stockier and woodier, so we'll see if that works out. I have some sage I'm going to plant, but I'm just going to plant that outside. I'm just going to throw that on the ground and see what happens. Because sage goes fucking bonkers, and it'll totally take over, which is fine by me. So, that. Um, but, yeah, like, lavender, I've never been able to grow. Chives do the same thing. They shoot way up, and then they fall over and die. Same thing with green onions. <laughs> but uh, this is the summer for me to experiment with that stuff. Now that we're in, like, a house where if I'm growing a bunch of stuff like that, I it, it is not going to look like a waste because I can always, like I said, dehydrate it or make something yeah, out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, tangential question. Um, have you noticed any difference in egg flavor depending on what the chickens are eating? Not really. Excellent segue, by the way. A friend of mine years ago, years ago, a uh, year and a half ago, two years ago, gave me a bag of marigold flowers that she had uh, harvested from her back lot. And she was using them for baking, but she had way too many and she knew they were going to go bad. So she gave me some and she was like, I hear that if you give these to chickens, they love them. And I was like, okay, cool. We did notice, because even with regular backyard chicken eggs the yolks are richer and darker almost to an orange as opposed to a yellow we did notice that when they ate those marigolds those fucking things were orange they were like bright <laughs> orange yolks and it, you know they're omnivores chickens are monsters they'll eat anything but you do want to give them variety we feed them an organic feed that we buy at a feed store which we have not noticed any issue with egg production so that conspiracy theory can go away but we do also give them, like, table scraps. And I have, I grilled some ribeyes. It was the first grilling day of the year a little while back. And I grilled some bone-in ribeyes. And I, you know, we ate them. But the bone still has meat on there, so I'm going to give the chickens those today. I can't say that I necessarily noticed that it's like, oh, this is clearly a marigold egg. You know, yeah. but we did see a difference in the, the color of the yolk. And it, they're, okay. they're such small animals, the change is almost instantaneous. Like, you give them marigold flowers, the next day those yolks are bright orange. So now you need to experiment to try to get multicolored egg yolks, <laughs> different egg yolks. Or like red, <laughs> right? Demon <Yeah>. eggs. <laughs> give them a bunch of lavender, see what happens. I don't know that I want a lavender egg. That sounds kind of gross. <laughs> I like lavender, but I like lavender in more of like a soap candle kind of a yeah. thing oh so marigolds yeah. my daughter has this lemon cookie recipe that she loves it's a it's a straight sugar cookie recipe but it's got a whole bunch of lemon juice and a whole bunch of lemon zest in it what i love about it for her is the variety the the versatility of it because we dehydrated a bunch of different berries and made sugar out of them and ground them up with sugar so she has blueberry sugar and raspberry sugar and blackberry sugar and strawberry sugar and when you ball up the cookie dough you roll it in that sugar and then bake it off anybody if you've ever been to my instagram you've seen those cookies so i want to go one step crazier with that and make a brown butter 
put marigold leaves into that because I, I have some culinary marigold that is dry that we use for my daughter's candle making projects. I want to put the marigold in the butter, let it steep, not when the butter's like super ripping hot, but just warm enough that it'll steep, and then chill that butter down and use that to make those cookies and make a lemon marigold cookie because I think it would work and I think it's just fancy enough because she still wants to start a business with her friends having a bakery out of our house. That's the kind of like eye-catching, like what the fuck is that sort of item. I feel like that could be a good picture and it would be a good like draw. Like these are kids yeah. who are making cupcakes and whatever, but they've got these bonkers fucking cookies also, right? Which we wouldn't call them that because we're trying to sell to other 10-year-olds, you know? So <laughs> things like that, I just, I need to figure out how best to do, because I know you can do brown butter in cookies. It's just that it's difficult to cream that as far as the creaming method of a cookie dough goes because it's already had the liquid taken out of it. So I need to figure out how to do that. I don't necessarily know that I would love that cookie flavor-wise, but it just sounds interesting, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think I've had anything with marigold in it. We used it in some candles when my daughter was making candles for her uh, her candle making project thing. We're gonna make some more this week at some point, I think, because my niece, we're going next weekend to uh, Detroit for my niece's birthday party, and I think my daughter wants to make her some candles. But for the most part, we've done lavender candles, and we also have rose petals, culinary rose petals that we've used. So the lavender is going to be not a brand new thing for us, but eating-wise, it'll be a new thing. Nice. Uh, the other day when Kayla was going through the freezer, she's like, oh, yeah, I forgot that I'd frozen all these oranges that we got in one of those, like, $5 uh, going to go bad box. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she... Uh, she peeled them and segmented them and, and froze them. So she's like, I'm going to try to make um, orange juice out of these with the juicer. And then um, her impatience, according to her, got the best of her. So she put them in when they were still a little frozen, which the juicer just interprets as everything as pulp. Then. <laughs> so like a millimeter or two of juice and then all this pulp. And um, so she decided instead she was just going to make uh, orange muffins. She's like, that's I, that has to be a thing I can do, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so she did, and they actually turned out really well. So I have no complaints about, uh, um, random, what was going to be orange juice becoming, uh, orange. I don't know whether they're muffins or cupcakes. Uh, they aren't, <laughs> they aren't terribly sweet. So I, I will call them muffins and we're going to maybe play around and try to perfect, uh, some kind of recipe for, uh, orange or, um, uh, yeah, orange muffins. So, uh, and we, oh, she added some dried cranberries. Too. I was just about to say dried cranberries. Yep. That's the way to yeah. go. So, um. So yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. You know what? What permutations there are? They, these they were actually better this morning than they were when we tried the piping hot one out of the <laughs> oven um, <laughs> to give it a go to see what it was going to be like. But uh, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if marigold would go well with orange or not. But oh, guaranteed <laughs> that, it would. At the very least, they look like they would. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, speaking of orange, as long as I'm continuing to like. Now it's just project-based. I'm like, what can I do? What can I do? Right? So I've been having – we eat a lot of oranges at the house. Not me necessarily. I don't like sit down and eat an orange a lot. I go through waves where I do. But it's been explained to my wife that uh, at this point in her life with the health issues she's starting to develop as somebody who is aging, as we all are, she should be eating more citrus. And so she's been eating – she's been taking down an orange a day, which is awesome, I guess. So I've been having her save those peels, right? 
keeping them in a container in the fridge, and then I've been dehydrating them, and I bought myself a new grinder, a new coffee grinder, so that I have something a bit more robust, and I've been turning them into a powder, and I don't know what to do with it. It's just awesome, right? It's just like this super <laughs> concentrated, very finely ground up orange peel powder. A little bit bitter, a little bit uh, uh, astringent, right? But, like, I made orange cranberry muffins. We had some friends coming over, and I had ricotta left over because I made a lasagna or ricotta pizza or something. I forget what it was, but I had some ricotta left over. So I found a recipe for an orange ricotta cranberry muffin, dried cranberry muffin, and they were pretty good. But like all recipes you find on the internet, they're like, eh, it was like 80% there, right? Yeah, yeah. But we had also, and I put some of that orange peel powder in there. We had also taken a soap making class for my wife's birthday. We talked about this on this show? Yes, yeah. So this was at a place called Distinct Bath and Body, which is over on Milwaukee, just north of Irving Park. If you're familiar with the north side of Chicago, hard recommend. Sam and his crew over there do a fantastic job. And when I say his crew, I think he has one employee. And he (laughs) makes his family work there, too. So we did this class over there. And I happened to mention that orange peel powder to him. And he was like, I'll take it. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, he's been trying to figure out a way to work orange into a soap for a while. And so when I went to pick up the soap that we made, because it takes like two weeks to cure, I dropped off that container of, of orange peel powder. It was one of those, like, uh, a six-ounce uh, mason jar. No, 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 no. I dropped that off earlier. Then when I went to pick the soap up, he came running out. He goes, oh, you got to look at this. You got to look at this. And he had already made a soap out of some of that orange peel powder. So this would have been a week ago and maybe a week and a half ago now. I need to go back over there and buy some of it just because, like, I helped him make it. <laughs> right? Like, it's got my orange peel powder in it, which is awesome. And so I'm really excited to see how that turned out. But, like, if any of you are in the market for soap, there's a guy on Milwaukee, just north of Irving, who is using orange peel powder that I made at my house to make soap that you could just go get. So that, that part's <laughs> kind of cool, too. Nice. Yeah, I can um, – there was a uh, – so the the company that used to make soap and st- – or the, the shampoos and stuff for the Disney resorts has unfortunately gone out of business. It was H2O Plus, I think. Um but they had one that was, uh, it was a citrus kind of a thing of some kind. I can't remember if it was orange or not, but it was so, um, so great to use, especially in the morning because that just, the, the smell was, was invigorating and really kind of woke you up in the shower. Yeah. Um, so I can, I can see definitely like a, a citrus soap or an orange soap. Um, you know, even if it's not necessarily adding anything to the, uh, <clears throat> to the soap in terms of cleaning you. Um, this, that smell is definitely a pleasant thing in the shower. Well, and the variety, not to just make this a show where all I do is promote Sam's shop, but like the variety that he has in his store, we were talking about it. He goes, you don't really buy one thing from me, do you? And I was like, no, no, no. I just like changing shit up and seeing, cause like the one that I have right now is an activated charcoal eucalyptus soap i want to say but i don't really pay that much attention to it i just get the ones that sound like he's got a sandalwood he's got like all of these different things he's got one that's called dragon's blood that i don't know what's in it but it's kind of purple and it's awesome he's got a coffee (laughs) scrub which i like but because there's like pieces of coffee in it it tends to like it goes away more quickly like it's easier to make foam and whatever out of but it just wears down more quickly uh there's one he has a coconut one which i love but it's one of the more popular ones. He runs out of it. But I could just go in there with my eyes closed and buy anything, and it's going to be great. Because I also sort of don't care. Like, I don't need to smell, like, one thing. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it's all soap. Like, we learned how to make the soap and how to mix the things together and, and all of that. So, like, that base stuff, even without any 
uh, scent or, or anything in it, yeah. it's all going to do the same job. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I like that quite a bit. So, that's a half an hour of us talking about not the stuff we were going to talk about today, yeah. Steve. So, <laughs> where do you want to start? Do you want to start with... Let's Actually, let's do this. Let's. We never covered... This is an article I sent you a while back. Uh, we never covered the rare fungal disease sickens dozens of mill workers in Michigan. Yeah. Because this was a while back. I forget when I sent this. Just a couple weeks back now. Or did you send me this? I forget now. No, no. I think you sent it to me. So this comes from Gizmodo. And... A fungal outbreak has likely sickened nearly 100 workers at a Michigan paper mill, local health officials say. The infection is known to be caused by fungi that live in soil and decaying wood, but at this time, the source of the outbreak is unclear. Now, this is not really a culinary issue, right? So it might seem kind of strange that we're covering out on this show. However, I did just finish watching The Last of Us, so there's that. <laughs> and also, fungi are mushrooms, so that's the tie-in there. The fungal disease, this is from the article, the fungal disease is called blastomycosis, named after the blastomyces fungi, that fungi that causes it. People usually become infected by breathing in spores that have been kicked up in the air, though only around half will go on to experience symptoms. These symptoms are typically respiratory and include fever, cough, muscle aches, and fatigue. Uh... There's not much to say about this other than like, yeah, when it comes right down to it, mushrooms and fungi in general are the engine on this planet for decay. Anything that decays, for the most part, fungi is getting in on that action. And apparently fungi is tired of waiting for things to die first. Yeah. I don't know um, that anybody died from this one, though. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. Um, and I think it's one of those things that can be treated, but it's like you want to treat it. You don't want it to go untreated. And, and it's such a large uh, chunk. I mean, I don't know how many workers they have at the mill, but my thought was um, uh, we'd been talking a little bit about safety and, and yeah. some other things. And it's like you don't have to wear a respirator working in a paper mill. Well, and I have – there's a paper mill in – Kalamazoo or Pawpaw, one of those two areas, then you can smell that shit. You can smell it because paper mill, somehow making paper smells god awful. I don't know why because <laughs> trees don't smell bad and paper doesn't smell bad, but somewhere in the middle it smells awful. But the fact that it smells awful outside of the mill means that they have to have really good ventilation. And with airborne spores, ventilation is one of the top two or three best ways to keep people from getting sick. You're also correct. Ventilators are important face masks that kind of thing yeah so uh yeah it, it, it i didn't read this and think to myself i'm gonna go mushroom picking <laughs> well right and i wonder we talked about this in the past that like not in the, in the recent past about like food trends coming up this year and how mushrooms were going to be big mushrooms are always big people are always eating mushrooms and i don't think that i've seen any sort of pushback from like articles like this or from the television show the last of us people aren't avoiding mushrooms because of it i think people get it i think to a certain degree people get it that like i uh, if you are eating a mushroom on a pizza that pizza is not going to turn you into a zombie mushroom yes. zombie. well i think isn't part of it and uh i have not seen the last of us i do understand i mean i know kind of um what the deal is yeah but uh the the mushroom that you mushrooms are so many and varied yes in in how they look 
So the mushroom you get on a pizza, I don't know as people are intellectually connecting that with the fungi in Last of Us, for example. Uh, I, yeah. It doesn't look like a, what, what do you put on pizza? Um, button mushrooms. Yeah, I mean, they don't, so they don't look like button mushrooms in the show, right? Right, right. So, um, so I think that's helpful that uh, you can you can choose a more a more disgusting mushroom to model your <laughs> uh, par- parasitic um, fungal outbreak on. They should have used oyster mushrooms because those things don't taste like anything. They're very expensive and people dig them. And I'm like, this mushroom is worthless. Doesn't taste like a <laughs> goddamn thing. That's another thing though. Like if you so let's say you spent 180 bucks on a dehydrator three years ago, and you're still trying to recoup that cost. Look <laughs> at how much. A pound of mushrooms costs, and how much like two ounces of dried mushrooms cost? Dry that shit out yourself. Wash them, slice them, put them in the dehydrator, and then put them in a glass jar. Man, I made sort of like a. I was trying to figure out dinner last night because, man, we need to talk about cars. My wife and I had uh, been out test driving cars, and so I needed to do dinner in a hurry. I had meatballs left over that I made earlier in the week. And I didn't have any sauce or anything. My daughter doesn't really like sauce on pasta and meatballs anyway. So I made sort of like a stroganoff sauce, right? It was like a cream, garlic, onions. And I thought, oh, crap, I could use some mushrooms. I had mushrooms because I had dehydrated some baby portobellas and some buttons. And I forget what the third mushroom is because I just have them mixed together in the jars. And I was like, well, look at that. I have mushrooms. So I (laughs) rehydrated them in a half a cup of water in the microwave. Boom. Had basically a beef stroganoff sauce. Served it with pasta. It was great. But so much cheaper. Yes, there's labor involved. Yes, there's electricity and storage and whatever. But holy smokes. Uh, four ounce package of uh, dried mushrooms is going to cost you 15 bucks, And a pound of regular mushrooms is going to cost you like four. All you need to do is take yeah. that shit home and, and dehydrate it. You can do it in the oven, but they get real rubbery in the oven. As opposed to a dehydrator, which is intentionally like blowing the moisture away with that fan so it can be done if you don't have a dehydrator but man 170 bucks if you're going to be able to save yourself nine dollars every time you want to buy <laughs> dried mushrooms you know and you also get more it's not even a one-to-one comparison you get more out of that you don't still get a pound out of a pound of mushrooms but it's sure not four ounces <laughs> you <know? Yeah. laughs> i should probably track that now that i'm thinking about it yeah regardless that's my that's my soapboxing about dehydrators <laughs> nice now i want to look into it all right i would like us to talk sadly about exploding cows yeah um so on our i i added this um, when i put it on the website it, the thing was well we need to add something else to our food disaster list yes update from a couple of weeks ago when we talked about food disasters this is from two days ago This is from Friday, April 14th, USA Today. 18,000 cows killed in explosion, fire at Texas Dairy Farm. Maybe the largest cattle killing ever. So, uh, short story, there was a huge tin-roofed cow... It's it's tough to even call it a barn. Cow warehouse? Cow house? Cow house, yeah. (laughs) That caught on fire and then exploded in a town in Texas called Dimmit, which sounds like an old-timey curse word. Yeah, yeah, yes, it does. As I have seen the reporting on this so far, no humans were hurt, but 
the blast could be heard and felt miles away from what I understand. Yeah. And it is currently thought to be, because this was also a facility that made, speaking of dehydrators, powdered milk, that that's how the explosion happened. That this was a fire that started either connected to powdered milk or separate from, and the powdered milk caught fire. And like we learned in our food disaster episode, lots and lots of food that are that's powdered, right? Flour. We found out about cornstarch. We found out about... What was the other one? Cocoa powder, maybe? Uh, this shit is explosive. Like, v- very, very, very explosive. Yeah. Um, and it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, powder equals explosion is my takeaway. <laughs> uh, right. Um, and uh, even just getting down to the bottom, it's like, what do you do with 18,000 carcasses? <laughs> it's, uh, it's mind-boggling. I, I, I can't even wrap my mind around it. And uh, um, it's such a... I mean, and it's pr- pretty much obliterated this dairy operation, right? Which had only been in place for three years, I noticed in the article, which is... Uh, yeah. It employs 50 to 60 people. One person was injured and was taken to the hospital. No other... Like, there were no human casualties. Um, but, yeah, it was 90% of the farm's total herd... And you're right, the buildings are gone. So uh, if this if this comes back, like I don't I don't know that this is something you can necessarily insure for. I don't have a dairy farm, so I don't know, but like all of our cows got exploded. I don't know if that's something that can be insured for. The article here values each of the cows at about two grand. Quote the company's losses in livestock could stretch into the tens of millions of dollars. That doesn't include equipment and structural loss. Yeah. I, it's wild. It's absolutely wild. Like, at no point would I be driving past a dairy farm thinking, bet you that might explode. No way. Yeah. No way. Um, it'll be interesting to see if anything else... I mean, because the sensational part of this is initially, of course, the, uh, the giant explosion and the 18,000 dead cattle... Um, so it'll be interesting to see if anything else comes out of this, like, um, um, just, you know, because you wouldn't think an operation that young would have issues with their machinery that would be causing something to explode, but I don't know. I don't know. And this is like, just for scale, ladies and gentlemen, this is a very large dairy farm. So another quote from this article, even by Texas standards, South Fork Dairy was a behemoth. It's 18,000 cattle made it nearly 10 times larger than the average dairy herd in Texas. 15 dairies in that county yield 148 million pounds of milk a month. That's a weird way to measure <laughs> milk. but Yeah, I don't buy it by the pound. I certainly do not either. Are you doing math? No, I'm trying to get to, the, like, how do we fix this up? State and dairy officials are turning to the massive, messy task of cleaning up 18,000 charred carcasses. Uh, On its website, the Texas Commission of the Environmental Quality lists several rules for on-site burial of carcasses, including burying the animals at least 50 feet away from the nearest well and recording GPS coordinates of the site. Yikes. I guess I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. That's also a... Like, there there are consequences further down the road, even not tied to, like, well, all the smoke and releases of possible chemicals and stuff like that. Where do you put 18,000 dead animals? Yeah. 
Um, because, uh, I mean, the, the chicken folk, I guess, would have to be thinking about this when they're culling a chicken herd. But 18,000 chickens take up a lot less space than 18,000 cows. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if, like, incinerator is an option for stuff like that. Or, uh, I mean, imagine for the cows, maybe more so for the chickens. I don't know, because just disease-wise, I don't know whether... Um, you'd think that would take care of bird flu, but... Uh, um, so I did. Uh, I tried to Google it, but I did find this: sixteen point five billion pounds of milk is more than one point nine billion gallons. So I guess sixteen point five billion pounds sounded better than one point nine billion <laughs> gallons. But that's both numbers are equally as incomprehensible to me in terms of imagining how much milk that is. Yeah, and milk still remains one of the few items in this country's food production that's broadly local, right? Like. As much as possible, milk stays kind of local because, you know, you have like Dean's Milk. Dean's Milk yeah. is a national company, but what they do is they contract with farms and they supply in regions because it just doesn't transport well. Even if you keep it cold, milk, as soon as it comes out of that animal, there's a, it's on the clock, you know? And so yeah. losing a producer that's 10 times larger than the other producers in that area... That's a big deal for that area for milk production. However, we've also seen an issue in this country issue. I don't know. We've seen a trend in this country where people are drinking less milk by and large. And so it's it's interesting that like now we have dairy operations that are having to discard milk because nobody will buy it from them because milk is sitting on the grocery store shelves. And there's nothing else to do with it because by and large, they're also not equipped to make cheese or to dehydrate their milk or to put it in cans for condensed or whatever. And even those markets are flush. And so I don't necessarily know that we're going to see... Maybe we will. Maybe we'll see some scalping where milk prices in Texas will now increase and they'll go, oh, it's because of all those cows that died. Just like with the eggs where they were like, oh, it's because we need to make 700% our profit. So right. maybe we'll see some gouging there. Scalping was the wrong word. We'll see some price gouging there. But I don't think that'll affect a big chunk of the rest of the country. I don't necessarily see when I buy milk for my job the increase in that cost because of these cows in Texas. I'm, I would be shocked. Yeah. Yes. And well, it, it's also so new, um, the, the, that dairy being just a couple years old. Granted, I mean, it was producing a lot of milk. But yeah. uh, being so, so young, you wouldn't think the market would have... Uh, Unless there was, you know, it's already put two or three other dairies out of business. I don't know. Right. And, I mean, you're talking about an operation that's so large that if they were to, let's say they have insurance and they can replace every cow and every building and all that, they're still looking at two years before they get back on their feet. Yeah. So, I guess if you're in that area of Texas and you're producing milk, all of a sudden you can charge more, likely, just because yeah. there will be local scarcity. But it also depends on who they're supplying to. Like, if this is a company that or this is a herd that mainly supplies to some large national outfit uh, as opposed to just selling to the Ralphs down the street then maybe the little guys will have a tougher time breaking into that I don't know well it's also interesting that I mean if they were making powdered milk maybe that was their biggest thing was uh, um, so maybe the your refrigerator case isn't gonna see any you know change down there but if you were buying powdered milk or other things that require powdered milk maybe maybe that's going to be more affected yeah i wonder how many dairies actually have that as part just on the farm because that's kind of surprising to me but i i'm really ignorant about all of that right um but my my thought was it's always a separate thing like you're bringing the milk in and you're powdering it at a separate um you know separate plant (laughs) 
don't know yeah. what to call it. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing, too. Something that is as perishable as that, you kind of want to have the infrastructure in place for... We make yogurt, we make cheese, we make powdered milk, we made sweetened condensed, we make regular condensed, we make evaporated milk. Like, why wouldn't you want to have all those things on hand? Yeah. But there's also, like, yeah, ag is a huge deal, and farmers are the backbone of our country, and without them we couldn't eat and all that. But, like, there are systems in place, and there's a certain stodginess to it where it's, well, this is how my grandfather did it. And, like, yeah, your grandfather didn't have the internet, man, and, like your milk was being delivered directly to people's houses and you had a, a direct revenue stream. Like, it's also this push that I have in my personal life to just, like, I want to make stuff now. I want to, like, be producing things as opposed to being, like, somebody who buys things. It seems like if you wanted to have a, a fully fleshed out dairy operation these days, maybe you should have all of those avenues covered. Or at least yeah. have a... a a relationship with people who do those things so you're like yeah i produced ten thousand gallons of milk this month and i was only able to sell seven i have three thousand gallons of milk that i'm going to sell some to the cheese guy some to the yogurt guy you like that sort of thing like have that shit ready to go because yeah. i read these stories about dairy farms just pouring the milk out on the ground like there that why is that option number one yeah <laughs> you yeah. know so it's uh, diversification, but still within your, uh, you know, within your one thing. Yes. Um, you know, what this also brings to mind is, remember, it was a couple years ago, maybe, there was the the um, cheddar surplus or cheese yeah. surplus. Yep. I, I wonder what's going on with that right now. <laughs> well, and one of the things that we should talk about later anyway, how much milk does Kraft buy to make powdered cheese sauce for... Yeah cheese sauce packets for Kraft Mac and Cheese, right? Like, what is that What is that supply chain look like, and how do you break into that? How do you get your milk into that process? Yeah. I don't know. Well, because there's a lot of other, all the, um, used to be Lipton, now I think it's Nor, but the uh, the pesticides. Yeah. Um, but any sort of, uh, um, well, even just the people the people making pasta, pasta sauces, too. If they're making an Alfredo sauce or something, they're going to need dairy, right? Right. Oh, that shelf-stable um, Alfredo sauce is such garbage. However, they're still <laughs> making it. They're still selling it. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, well, and uh, I imagine the, uh, you know, uh, well, yeah, Kraft, not only for their their uh, macaroni and cheese, but also for Kraft singles. Even yeah. though it's cheese food, it still, like, <laughs> I think requires some dairy. But, uh, um, but so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, and, and I don't know, there's got to be, like, cake mixes and some mixes that require powdered milk as well, right? Bisquick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, there's, yeah, a lot of companies that require or need the powdered milk to put into their product. Yeah, and the short answer is produce less milk if you're in a position where you have to throw it away at the end of the day. But that's not the answer. That's not the capitalist structure we're in. The answer is make more, right? More is always more. But you're right. Like, where are those things coming from? Where are those companies getting? Because it's not even just craft. There's... 15 or 18 different yeah. fake like Velveeta has their own brand of like Kraft Mac and Cheese you know yeah. and that's hardly the only one if you've got the Hidden Valley Ranch packet that you just mix with mayonnaise and milk at home to make that's got buttermilk in it you know there's yeah. I can't now that I'm thinking about it th does everything in the whole world have powdered milk in it <laughs> <laughs> where is all that it, coming from I don't know it, it might 
Um, and I think uh, to speak to what you just said uh, in terms of you know make less, it's you can't as a dairy farmer like you, you can't make less yeah. because you can't just stop milking a cow. The cow has to get milked. Yeah. Um, so uh, you, you you get what milk you get. You can't get less than. Um, and it, so the, oh, you can if you sell a couple cows. Sure. <laughs> you know, or if eighteen thousand of them blow up, you're going to get a lot less milk. Right. But yeah. Um, yeah. But otherwise, uh, you get the milk that you get. I am not a farmer. I am very unlikely to become a farmer. My wife keeps bringing it up that we should buy land somewhere and become farmers. And I'm like, yeah, that's a young person's game. Also, buy <laughs> land with what money, man? So that. I'm going to do some very small-scale farming here at the house. And I really am toying with this idea of producing a product I can sell just because it sounds like fun, right? Like uh, my own Mayor What's-His-Face from New Hampshire's sauce, yeah. right? Make a pizza sauce, make a marinara, put purple tomatoes in jars that I've peeled and blanched and whatever. Like, that could be a lot of fun. That's going to be a local thing. Man, I'm not shipping this stuff all over the country, at least not right away. But that sounds like fun. Am I going to get dairy cows? Absolutely not. Like, the chickens are about as much as I can handle, and I don't even really do that, right? Like, yeah. a buddy of mine, a buddy of mine, a guy I went to culinary school with lives in Vermont, and I keep looking at his Instagram, and I'm like, you have fucking goats? How do you do that? I don't know what he does for a living. Like, maybe he just farms. Maybe that's his whole thing. I'm like, I don't want goats. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that, that sounds like a big responsibility. <laughs> didn't, I, didn't you yeah. have friends growing up that had goats? Yeah. Yeah. Up in, I mean, up in Traverse City? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I was Because wherever where I was, there was someone that I knew that was in 4-H that had goats. <laughs> goats, horses, pigs, chickens, turkeys. We had people. Yeah. I knew people who had geese and ducks. Like, that's... I grew up with farm kids. I was not a farm kid, but I grew up with farm kids. And they were the ones who, like, we talked about in our last episode about that girl who... Her parents made her go to work when she was 13 or 14 years old. I remember being in elementary school and having kids who were really tired all day. And you'd be like, what is wrong? And they're like, oh, well, we're bringing in the hay or whatever. Yeah, like they're doing yeah. big time sensitive, right? Or there was lambing season or whatever, right? Like there were things that they had to do well into the night the day before. And because I was raised in a fairly rural community, the teachers took that into account. Like these were kids who didn't necessarily have to take the test on test day. They yeah. they could wait until they felt <laughs> like awake, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. And that was we were jealous a little bit, but then we were like, yeah, but I'm not throwing hay bales into the back of a tractor, right. <laughs> so I'm good, you know. Um yeah, there were the farm kids, but also I mean, I had a friend in high school who's both his parents worked jobs that wasn't that were not farming. And uh, but they were also big into 4-H, so they had like three goats. Huh. Um, just like it, they lived out in the country, so their their garage uh, kind of doubled as a goat pen. You know, it was open in the back. It was probably more of a barn that they parked their car in than a garage that was sure. used for goats. But uh, a pole barn. Um, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. So uh, um, yeah, then there were people too that wouldn't wouldn't raise hogs, but would raise a hog in order for 4-H to yeah. try to win a trophy. Um, well, and, and you get, get to sell later. it at the end, right? Yeah. Yep. So I never did 4-H. We always went to the 4-H because 4-H was always a big part of the county fair, yeah, right? And yep. so we would always go to it. And I would see people that I knew. But what was nice, uh, looking back on it now, what was nice about the uh, upbringing I had, there was no stigma to it. It wasn't like oh, I was dirty farm kids, right? Like it was. They oh, yeah. they had an accomplishment. They had done a yes. thing. It was shocking uh, to me as a kid to be like you raised an entire animal like that's we, we couldn't even keep dogs and stuff at the house they would run away <laughs> yeah. 
But again, my and mom. Now you have chickens. That's true. That's true. But my mom always had a garden. We were always tied to that kind of thing. So again, that's the sort of thing that I want to pass on to my kids, especially if I can really start producing. It's also. I, I want to produce things here at the house that we're going to eat. Like, if I just grow a shitload of tomatoes, we're not going to eat a shitload of tomatoes. We're not a family that just, like, eats tomatoes. But if I make pizza sauce out of it, we will go through some tomato product, you know? Yeah. So that's the way – that's why I'm growing basil. That's why I'm growing oregano. You know, like, that sort of thing. I want to make sure that it's tailored to what my kids are going to do. Now, the other thing I'm going to do is I'm growing two different varieties of heirloom cucumbers specifically to make pickles out of and i kind of do want to sell those because that shit is fun and people love pickles my family doesn't necessarily <laughs> love pickles but other people do so that's that one's that one's for me that's going to be fun and, and that's a cool place to start um and and if you're doing it if cottage cottage industry yeah, or yeah. uh out of your out of your home you won't necessarily have to go the route of um farmers markets right because as we right. learned from crooked barn that's um uh, kind of hard to break into right yeah it can be and there are like vendor uh fees that you have to pay to get a space for a booth and all that i would do direct to consumer so i would build a separate instagram i would build a website i would have i would leverage that kind of stuff because we already have an audience here i have an audience on my socials where i could very quickly turn that into like here are some things that i have if anybody wants to buy them you know I don't know about easily. I could do it fairly quickly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the 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 um, oh, who is Crooked Barn? I forgot. I've forgotten his name. Peter. Peter. Um, when the, when Peter was talking about the, uh, some of the stuff that he was having to do to get into some farmers markets and things, um, up in Vermont, that that aspect of it is what seems just so daunting to me. Yeah. Um, and just robs me of all my ambition. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other thing is that. He's doing that full time, and I applaud him for that because when you jump in with both feet like that with no security, with no safety net, that's some scary shit right there. I would be doing this like on the weekend and in my spare yeah, time, yeah. and I would be right. intentionally limiting it to just like I want to make some play money because the other thing is that I've already sunk all the costs into these tomatoes that I'm going to. All these seeds total it cost me about 18 bucks, right? Everything I get out of them is labor cost. That's all it is. I'm going to be putting water in and I'm going to be taking tomatoes out. And then it's all going to be labor. I guess I need to buy like jars. But even then, mason jars don't cost that much. So yeah, those will be built in costs when I do pricing. But at this stage, like that dude's got to continually buy all of the high-end meat that he uses for his sausages. And there's a lot of production and he needs a space to rent and all this kind of stuff. The, the stuff that I'm talking about doing is it's low input, it's low labor, like, I, it, it's more fun stuff. This isn't going to be my job. Yeah. You know, you know what? This also makes me think, um, and this is, uh, Peter, this is probably a terrible idea, but Ben, you need to send Peter some of your dried orange peel and see if he can create some sort of sausage with dried orange peel, which hmm. I can't conceive of anything, but um, if anyone can do it, Peter can. Oh, for sure. Like a spicy chicken orange sausage. Yeah. Huh. Well, Peter, if you're in, let me know. I can send you some. I have a bunch. <laughs> I'm going grocery shopping today. I'm buying more oranges. We, we're up to our eyeballs and oranges here at the house. I can just keep producing that stuff. He may. I don't. I don't know what his uh, the rules are for him in terms of sourcing materials either. So that might not be. Uh, he might not be able to use it. But. Um, who let knows? us know if if nothing else peter let us know what sausage you would create with powdered orange peel <laughs> right that's fair <laughs> i so i gave to my soap guy i gave him that one six ounce jar i have another six ounce jar 
uh, that's virtually untouched. But again, I can produce this stuff basically nonstop. And it's what I love about it is that it's essentially garbage. Would we compost the peels? Yes, we do. But instead, I'm turning them into a product that somehow has value somewhere, right? Like, I love that. I love that I'm taking something that is essentially discard, and I'm making it into a thing that has value. That's, that's the thing that I like the most about this. Like, the tomatoes. In my head, because I'm going to crosshatch the top of the tomato, blanch them real fast, chill them down, and take the peels off of them, take the skin off, so that I can put them in jars, and it's that. It's whole peeled tomatoes in jars, right? The skins... I'm going to save, I'm going to dehydrate, and I'm going to powder them because powdered tomato peel, I could use for everything. Like, that would be amazing to go in or on sourdough bread. It could be just to bolster a tomato sauce. Like, there's no reason to throw anything away yeah. out of that product. And Especially if they're, the... if they're purple, right? Like, why would I yeah. throw that away? That's where a lot of the, the antioxidants or whatever is in the yeah. peel, especially the purple ones, right? Yep. No update from purple tomato people so yeah i still have not gotten those seeds but so, yeah like now that i've thought about it i don't know that i want those seeds because they are so specifically gmo i don't think i want to grow them next to my heirloom tomatoes just in case they do cross pollinate i want to keep my heirlooms separate you know yeah and i don't have a good way to separate them in the backyard you know yeah until you get your greenhouse. Till I get that greenhouse. <laughs> I should set an upper price limit and be like, okay, I will buy a greenhouse up to this price, and beyond that, I'm not going to do it, and then start looking, you know, and see if, if yeah. it's even a viable option. I know we're going to get some comments from some folks. We have some makers in our audience, which I am jealous that you folks have the kind of skill sets that allow that. Some of you are going to be like, just build your own. I will not be able to build my own greenhouse. That's just not going to happen, right? The best thing I can do is buy something that's kit-based that I just assemble on my own so that I know it's not going to fall down. <laughs> I would love to be that guy who just, like, goes and gets some wood and builds a greenhouse. That's not me. I'm not that guy. Now, never having priced greenhouses um, at all, uh, I don't know how much they cost, but it sounds like you have to buy a car first. Oh, correct. And excellent segue. So... Ladies and gentlemen, this isn't necessarily food-based, but like Steve and I have said over and over again, customer service is customer service. Remember, <laughs> I got the better part of an entire office at a dentist's office, like all of those people who worked there. I got most of them fired one time, right? And that was recently. We've talked about that on this show. That like, when you go up to a counter, let's say it's at a dentist's office, Let's say it's at a really badly run dentist office where you find out later everybody got fired because it was very badly run. And you say to them, hi, I've been here for an hour. We had an appointment, which in my world translates to a reservation. We had an appointment. What the fuck is going on? And they're like, oh, yeah, no, we had this problem like five hours ago that we didn't tell anybody about. It's going to be a little bit longer. That is bad customer service. I am a customer. That person behind that counter is in the position of working for customer service, whether or not they think that they're an office employee at a dentist, they are in customer service, right? So, establishing all that. Ladies and gentlemen, if any of you have tried to buy a car recently, holy shit. <laughs> I remember when we bought the car that we're getting ready to replace. We have a now 15-year-old Subaru Forester. It is a champion. It is a workhorse. It is dying. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's not even dog years, right? Like 15 years for a Subaru Forester is the car's like 120 years old. It creaks. It doesn't even have to be on. You can just walk over to it and listen to it creaking. <laughs> it's like the entire car is made out of my knees right now. It has been a fantastic vehicle for us. We got to get rid of it. 
And what's going to happen is like, we need to get rid of it. Because what's going to happen is it's going to just explode and take out 18,000 cows. So <laughs> when we bought it, man, were they desperate to sell a car to us. They were like, buy this car. Please buy this car. It's going to be great. Let me give you this. Let me give you this. And cars were a thing that like, this is 15 years ago, you would go and you would have like three salespeople swoop down on you. They're all trying to give you the best deal and they want to give you the heated seats and they want to do this and that. Boy, now buying a car, you walk in and they're like, oh, more people. Great. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I'm going to do this out of chronological order, but it's all about the test drive, right? So we test drove. So yesterday we test drove a uh, Honda CRV, hybrid, like partially electric. Honestly, mm -hmm. that might be the car we go with. It was pretty awesome. The dude who was our salesperson went with us for the test drive, which I thought was fairly standard, talked up the car the whole time, whatever. It was great. He's got a shtick because, ladies and gentlemen, also, uh, customer service is performative. If you are yeah. in customer service and you find out you're bad at it, take an improv class. It will help you <laughs> like you would not possibly believe. The public speaking class that I took in college informs a lot of what I do customer service-wise. You don't have to be the person selling a car. You can play a character of somebody who wants to sell a car and then go back to your regular-ass <laughs> life, right? Steve knows all about this. This guy, Chris, who was trying to sell us a Honda yesterday, great at it. He's got his shtick down, but it wasn't greasy. He did the thing where that my brother does this instinctively. Within a couple of minutes of meeting us, he found one point of connection between my wife and I and him, shared interest kind of thing, and he reiterated it two more times, really established a connection. Did it have anything to do with cars? Fuck no. But that's how you humanize <laughs> the whole process, right? So that was yesterday. Last week, we went and uh, drove a... Um, oh, and he had taken pictures of both of our driver's licenses for their records. Great. Last week, we test drove a Nissan where the guy took pictures of both of our... Uh, driver's licenses and then let us test drive it without him there and he said people have a better like more honest experience if the the salesperson is not there talking it up and i was like that's weird i've never gone on a you know on a, a test drive without somebody there right like unsupervised and the guy was like we suggest this route around the neighborhood whatever just bring it back we were like okay and he had our driver's licenses and whatever so we felt like okay we need to bring this back we go to test drive a Mazda yesterday. Bottom of the list already. Don't get me wrong. It's not what we want, but we wanted to give everybody a fair shake. Get there. We have an appointment. We wait for 30 minutes, eh, 25 minutes. And in that time period, three different people come and talk to us and give us really hollow apologies about like, we're finding someone to take care of you. We have an appointment. Great. We're now within a couple of minutes of me looking at my wife and being like, this is not a car we want really anyway. How much more time are we going to waste here? But she's a completionist. She wants to make sure that she's got all the information before she makes a decision, and I applaud that. <laughs> so we finally had a woman come up to us. This is now the fourth person we've interacted with. And she confirms the exact make and model of the car that we want to drive away, take on a test drive. And within a couple of minutes, she comes back and she goes, that's the one we're going to have you test drive. And she hands us keys. And we get up and then she walks back to her desk. And I looked at my wife and I said, did, when you set up the appointment, did you give them like your driver's license and stuff like that? And she goes, no. I said, I haven't done that either. We just drove this car away. <laughs> like, I understand they probably have a low jack on it, right? They probably have some sort of a tracking system on it, but they didn't know who the fuck we were. Yeah. And so we drove this car off of their lot to do a test drive they did not know who we were 
we could have just legit stolen that car. We could have just fucking driven that thing away. We did not like it, which was fine because also that was informed by the customer service experience. That car could have been amazing. It was already a four in my book out of 10, no matter what. Getting into that car, it was already a four because we had just been not, it wasn't that we were mistreated at that shop. We just weren't treated well. In fact, we weren't really treated, you know? Yeah, yeah. Also, the interior of that particular Mazda dealership was kind of sketch, right? Like they sat us down at a desk that was clearly uh, abandoned. And there were, because there were like half wall dividers between the desks with like glass panes attached to them. There were just extra glass panes on the desk. And there were (laughs) ceiling tiles that were out that had just like wires sticking out of them. The place looked not even grungy, but just like sketchy, you know? And so the fact that they were just like, yeah, here, fucking steal this car. We were like, what? And so we drove it around a little bit. We decided within a couple of blocks, we did not want that car. We traded off. I drove it the rest of the way back. And I looked at my wife and I said, we could just abandon this car. Like, we could just drive this to where we parked our car and just walk away. They don't know who we are. (laughs) (laughs) And it was that level, that very, very low level of care that we got from that dealership. Like, they could have talked us into that car. No question. Because whatever. Cars are kind of cars. This one felt kind of cheap and whatever, but I wonder two things. I wonder how understaffed they have to be to just give people keys to cars and have them drive off the lot without any supervision at all and not knowing who those people are. Because I'm sure by the time we got to that fourth person, that person already thought that our information had been taken by somebody else. They thought we were known, right? So bad communication understaffed i guess (laughs) and my second question is of course if i wasn't a 44 year old white guy would they have thrown keys at me and said please don't steal this car yeah i wonder (laughs) about that i have no way to tell and i don't want to cast aspersions but like i get the feeling that my privilege allowed us to walk off of that lot or drive off of that lot with a car that nobody had any idea who we were when we were driving yeah. away right like if we wanted to go rob a bank and that was our getaway car we would have been in great shape for that unreal <laughs> unreal experience i will not be buying a mazda like they've just ruined me for all mazdas like that's how you do that if what you wanted to do was ruin an entire brand for me you've done it because customer service is customer service we were not served as customers at all except it for the is- fact that we were almost donated a car <laughs> it does make me wonder like because if you were, each person that came up to you is like oh yeah we're looking for someone to help you it was like by help do you mean just hand us the keys like couldn't the first person have handed us the keys right. if that's all you were gonna do unless it was like oh gosh that last person has been on this test drive for like an hour now because they were <laughs> robbing a bank yeah yeah and uh they hadn't brought it back yet and um yeah crazy uh do you, so the new thing one of the new things with cars as well nowadays and so my question for you is going to be not that not that this should be done, but how do you translate this into the restaurant? And maybe it's going to go back to when we talked about uh, clubs and memberships. Yeah. But one of the new things now um, car brands are doing is uh, ele- uh, heated steering wheel standard on every car. You want to use it? It's a subscription fee. Yeah. Um, so like BMW is doing this. Um, I forget who else is doing this. Um, but it's like, yeah, your heated seats, all these seats have that capability, but it's going to cost you like 40 bucks a month to get whatever package it is to actually activate this stuff. 
to to be able to use it. So yeah, all the buttons are there, but they're, none of them are going to work um, until you subscribe to the service because yeah. the cars are always connected to BMW via the cloud um, or whatever, and we can just turn the stuff off at our whim instead of it. You know, instead of you actually owning <laughs> the car <laughs> right. that you have and all of its gizmos. Um, so I I I am appalled by that when it comes to cars like if i want to pay extra for it then just give it I, i'm, I'm going to have it yeah. but the subscription model and i've always felt like so when we bought the chevy even when we have we had our chevy sonic which they don't make anymore but i didn't have any issues with that car, car other than the time i got hit um and it bent the rear axle but otherwise um you know the car itself no real issues but the thing about onstar which i believe is still a thing is my feeling was OnStar is a, it was like a, you know, you push the button and you can make phone calls. You yeah. get X number of minutes, like old school cell phone plan type of stuff in terms of you need to buy however many minutes you want to use. But it's like, I have a cell phone. Why would I want to make a call with my car? But the other thing is that the crash detection and uh, being able to push and get help sent to you because yeah. it's probably satellite instead of just cell phone. But the subscription model there was such that uh, when I was in the free period, I could have an app on my phone that would tell me tire pressure and when I needed to change oil and stuff like that, which I thought was really cool. But then it was like, this is $40 a month. I think it was literally like 40 or more dollars a month. Yikes. And I'm like, that's way too much. Yeah. It needs to be like a Hulu subscription um, or less, you know, uh, and then you're going to get everyone's going to subscribe to this. Yeah. But, but you're pricing me out and for something that's cool but not needed. Like, I don't need to look at my phone to tell tire <laughs> pressure. Yeah. There are other ways for me to figure that out. Well, and it's interesting you bring that up because I feel like, honestly, the subscription service thing for higher-end cars works for everyone. Because the kind of people who are going to buy that car are probably not going to have an issue with getting the subscription for the heated seats and the whatever. The heated steering wheel. The level of luxury required for someone to be like, oh, of course I want a heated steering wheel. Go fuck yourself. But <laughs> it works for everybody because this came up at the Honda dealership yesterday. I had a great experience there. And like I said, I'm happy to talk about great experiences. They market against that. They're like, well, these other car manufacturers have these package programs where you have to get all of these things, even if you don't want all of them, and then you have to pay this amount. And Honda's like, we don't do that. Whatever you want in your car, if we can get it put in, we'll do it. You'll pay for it once, and it's just yours. He's like, you want heated seats? We'll just put them in. After they're in, they're yours, whatever, right? And yeah. so that's also working for the, like, mid-range car manufacturers who are like, yeah, get a load of these rich assholes. We don't do that. <laughs> they don't say it quite like that, but I'll be honest with you, I would be more likely to buy a car from somebody who talked like that. <laughs> Well, when you're talking about heated seats, I think it's literally rich assholes Bingo. that they are uh, concerned with. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, like cars have changed. Obviously, we bought our most recent car when my daughter was like two, so that would have been eight years ago. Cars have changed since then. There are things about cars that I don't like and the kind of stuff that you're talking about, right? Like subscription service stuff, connectivity stuff. I don't necessarily want a car that's going to tell me when it's time to... Uh, do the oil pressure or the oil change or the tire pressure or whatever like especially if it's a we've contacted the dealership and set up an appointment for you like no 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 no, no. I'm, I'm good I'm good I'll take care of that shit myself right things yeah. can be too smart I don't need my car to be too smart <laughs> yeah well and then okay so how do what does that translate into I mean so yeah if you're buying memberships to restaurants that's one thing but it, it just uh um, middle of the road restaurants or just your regular sit down restaurant, what would the subscription fee be for? Well, I was thinking about that 
earlier today because I almost joined a subscription service for a coffee shop in okay. my old neighborhood. And I don't know that in full-service restaurants this is something that works out because I wouldn't – maybe I would get like a burger of the month subscription service where like – once a month on a very specific day, there's a burger restaurant where I just go in, flash a card, they make me a burger, and I'm out, right? Like that kind of thing. But a shorter duration subscription service to a restaurant isn't going to work for me. Unless it's like a salad club at a, a place that's in a downtown or a an office park kind of an area where you're eating there a lot, right? But for me, a subscription service to a restaurant is not going to work. I almost got a subscription to a local coffee shop place called Percolator, which is in my old neighborhood, because they do have local free delivery if you're on their subscription service, which is like once a week, somebody trots a pound of coffee over to your house and drops it off. And you pay a certain amount, and they have guaranteed income based on that. So it works out for everybody. However, my favorite coffee roaster in Chicago, Taste of Columbia, which is over on uh, Montrose and Cicero, just reopened like yesterday. And I went over there and bought three pounds <laughs> of coffee. And I was like, thank God you guys are open again. Not to say Percolator's coffee is bad. Percolator's coffee is excellent. Taste of Columbia's coffee is better than that. <laughs> you know, and I am a fucking snob. Now, does Taste of Columbia have a subscription service? No. If they had one, would I be on board? Yes. That is where I think it would work out the best. Like sandwiches, maybe? Like, I see subscription as being a lunch thing because when you're pressed for time and you're working in an office and you're ordering lunch, that's the kind of thing that you could trick people into going, yeah, I'm going to get this thing that I know is consistent, easy, and I already have it on lockdown, right? Yeah. Well, I, I, but I think it's so um, – it's, as far as just subscription services for restaurants, I think everything you're saying makes 100% sense. Um, but I think if we want – if I want to translate this automotive thing, like yeah. where you're buying the car – but the heated seats are – you have to pay this subscription service. Like, how does that translate? These are the things that come to mind. Yeah. So – and it would have to be, I think, on a grand scale like a, a Panera or some chain because if you're just a single restaurant, I don't know as you could do this. But it would be like, welcome to Panera. Are you a Panera member? You are? Great. That means you get to use the indoor plumbing if you have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> right. um, However, if you don't, you get to walk across the parking lot to the porta potty over there, and that's where you have to go. So we're still providing a restroom, but that's where you have to go. Um uh, oh, you uh, welcome to Olive Garden. You have a subscription. Great. Your spaghetti today will be served on a plate. Um, <laughs> you don't have a subscription. Uh, here is a paper sack full of spaghetti. Yeah. Enjoy. Um, enjoy your feedback. Um, <laughs> so it's it's more like you, you're penalizing the people that aren't a subscriber versus giving the subscribers actual benefits above and beyond. Right. Um, what's normal so it's like yeah here's your burger it's not composed it's just a bunch of stuff we threw in a bag you have to <laughs> kind of build it yourself um if you want us to build your burger then you need to uh the other thing i could think of in terms of maybe being similar would be uh so kayla and i we haven't been to florida to disney world in a while but we love to go to i think it's Sanaa. they have the bread service we've yeah, talked about it yeah. here um and um so it's uh a bunch of different nons or, or pitas and then a bunch of different dips. Uh, so if you had something like that, um, that would be like, you can only get this. You'd still have to pay for it maybe, but you can only get it if you're a subscriber. Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of thing could work. It's not necessarily apples to apples with the weird heated seats, but it's, um, you know, more, more like a, this menu option is only available to members of whatever. Well, and the benefit there for the operation is we know how much to make. 
right? So yeah. let's let's say it is you get an email that's like, hey, we just made this thing. This is your membership offer for the month. Would you like one? And people reply, and then like, because I could see that being something that you're stopping by a place to pick up the thing. That's your let's let's say you have a um, how would this work best? Like I you you have any of these like bistro kind of places, right? But you have a subscription service thing for members where it's like, okay, our appetizer special for members only this month is. And then either you can order it to go and you just go and pick it up and bring it home with you. Or it's a thing that you can have at your table when you come in for dinner, but you have to let them know that. And then again... The restaurant knows how much to order. They know how much to make. They are providing you a service that makes you feel, and a benefit, that makes you feel like you're slightly better than the other rooms who go there. Uh, or this is the kind of thing that you as a young married couple tie into a dinner party that you have once a month where you're like, oh, well, we belong to, you know, Le Cafe Parisien's membership club thing. So we will always bring the appetizer because, you know, these folks make it for us. You know, that kind of thing. Like it turns into... A socially value added kind of a thing where you get to be yeah. you get to tell people oh, i'm part of the club you know yeah but even then there's a lot that goes into that well haven't yeah. you talked and this this is a little this goes back to the other version i think of the subscription kind of thing and i don't know if we'd consider them subscri subscriptions but when you do um when you sign up for a uh a farm box yeah uh, like csa kind of thing yeah that's more or less that's a subscription right yeah um, and when you were talking about do, possibly doing uh, sourdough or whatever, yeah. you were th thinking of like not a subscription um, in terms of uh, like um, uh, what was the old uh, record company that would say uh, BMG music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so not like a BMG sort of a situation, but th but a this is a limited you, you're being a cottage industry or a cottage kitchen or whatever will be a limited amount of stuff you're going to be able to make. Yeah. Um, and that way it's like, okay, I have X number of people because I know that this is the number of things that I can do right. comfortably, um, without destroying my life. <laughs> um, so this is the number I'm going to do. So people need to sign up, um, in order to, right. uh, purchase. So maybe it's not a, everybody, someone signing up for, you know, 12 months of Ben's bread, but it's a, this signup's going up on this date. If you're going to buy it, you're committing to buying it by you know, sending me a message or whatever, and then it'll be ready by this date and yeah, the whatever. The way that I've toyed around with that in my head is twofold. The first one would be what you're talking about, which is I would do a blast where I would say, okay, this month the Randall's Rando box is this loaf of sourdough and these five things in jars. Here's what it costs. And I would set an upper limit because I would have already made the things in jars and I would use that as the like, here's as many as I can make. And then yeah. I would bake the bread according to how many people signed up by whatever cutoff date it was. And then it would be ready by whatever date. Uh, however, the second step of that is subscription service. You sign up. Yeah. You get something every month no matter what. And then I also set aside, like if I've got 20 subscribers. I also will then guarantee make 10 more and leave 10 spots open for people who just want to try that shit out, right? And that would be the way I would do it and just, like, lock myself into making whatever it was, 20 a month. Uh, and then if there were extras, like, always do an extra 10 
right? And then at the end of every six months, do a roundup and be like, here's, I'm, I'm cleaning the shelves. You know, we're, we're going to get rid of all this stuff and, and do a special, not a discounted box, but just like something that is a shade more affordable because it is like, maybe you've seen these things before. Maybe you're getting uh, the apple lavender jelly again, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. uh, that, I just, I don't see a brick and mortar doing that sort of thing and having it make sense for them. But yeah, for yeah. a cottage shop, like what I keep toying around with in my head. Yeah, that's exactly what I would do. You know, it kind of makes me wonder too, um, and I, th- I don't think this is anywhere we were planning on going today. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> in the so the subscri- subscription models, and some people kind of pivoted to this kind of thing during the height of COVID when yeah. everything was still shut down. Would be, you know, um, uh, here's here's everything for you to make this at home, or here's everything takeout wise for you to you know yeah. take out because you can't dine in right now. But I do wonder if there's um, a market for. And I know there have been different permutations of this, um, but it, but it's usually oh I forget what one of them was called. One of them was in a in the same little new plaza, new at the time. There was a Pizza Hut that I would go and sub at occasionally, and one of their things was also a uh, um, they would do a bunch of meals, and you would come and you'd purchase however many meals for the week. Oh yeah 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 yep. I, I forget what that about. was called, but I wonder if if like especially with ghost kitchens. Um, there would be a, like a, just the prep yeah. where it'd be like, we will do the meal prep for you, but you know, everything other than cooking it, but we'll, we'll prep it. But even some prep, you need to do cooking, right? You, yeah. Cause you can't just prep a sauce <laughs> without actually, um, yeah. doing the sauce, right? If you're, if it's a sauce related sort of thing, I guess some of them you probably could, but, uh, um, I wonder if ghost kitchens could be utilized for that kind of thing. So it's like, yeah, we have our restaurant where you come and sit down. But if you want the the take home and cook it yourself sort of experience, then we have a ghost kitchen that provides that subscription side of town. Right. Well, there's a restaurant that I had interviewed uh, called Dear Margaret. They opened in the height of the pandemic and they did exactly what you're talking about. You would order a meal and it would come as a kit where everything would be depending on how it was, it would either be hot and ready for you to just plate, or if it was a salad or something, it would be cold and ready to plate. And where they really succeeded was they had instructions on what went where, but then they also said, take a picture of this and show us how you put it together on Instagram. And it was instant free advertising, and it was genius. And I got meals from them where I did exactly that. And it was kind of fun, to be honest. And so I could see that's one of those um, where – you stumble, so you turn that into something funny, right? Like something happens, so you make a joke out of it. Making something where it's like, hey, everything sucks right now, but we're going to give you this little bit of work to do. You show us how it's awesome. That was a was a huge win for them. Yeah. See, I feel I, I'd be much more um, inclined to do something like that than the the food boxes, yeah. you know, the, the HelloFresh or whatever yeah. that gets sent to you. Because you, so so much of that is limited by what they can send through the mail or deliver right. to you. Whereas if you're picking it up from a local place, a you're supporting supporting a local place, which is um, better. Yeah. Um, and also they they're not constrained by um, what what they can send you through the mail. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where I need to be careful with how I do because I don't know how much driving around I want to do either. But how <laughs> I end up doing this subscription service box thing because like. 
Chicago's a big ass area. And so do I want to specifically make stuff that I have to then put in the actual mail or is this delivery or is it pickup? So I also don't want a bunch of weirdos coming to my house either, right? Yeah. So like there are subscription based folks that I need to talk to and find out what works best for them. Uh maybe there's a central area of Chicago where I'm just like, look, the pickup is and I go to a spot and I'm yeah. just like, here's that I'll be here for two hours. Come get your shit, <laughs> you know, which I bet, like, I mean, like, I hate to say it, but I bet that would be cool for the people who are picking it up too, because whenever I've done stuff like that, I have taken the time to talk to the person who I'm buying it from. And that can, that can be a lot of fun. Yeah. As I said, then, then you're like the guy that was trying to sell me speakers out of his trunk. Only it's sourdough. Bingo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Find a spot where I'm not inconveniencing one of those guys who has like a van that has a whole shitload of mangoes in the back of it. And they're like mangoes for nine cents. And you're like, Oh, you stole those. I will totally buy some mangoes. from you. <laughs> I don't want to get in their way. You know, these speakers, they were bought and uh, we, our boss doesn't want us taking them back to the warehouse. <laughs> like, none of this makes sense. <laughs> and I'm, I was here to go to Staples. I don't yeah. need speakers. Yeah. I'm here. <laughs> so this sourdough chef said, chef said we didn't want to take him back to the kitchen. <laughs> Man, I will need to upgrade my, oven situation if i'm going to be making a lot of sourdough though because i can still only really bake one loaf at a time and that's i'm just constrained by the uh the pizza stone that i have if i could do two i'd be in a much better position to uh really crank out some sourdough i'll have to figure that out um it can you take your uh, uh what kind of stone is a pizza stone i do not know what the actual construction of that is it might be soapstone but i don't know I said, can you take your, like, oven rack into, um, like, a, uh, a stone place and be like, make me a stone this size? <laughs> well, you can buy rectangular ones, so I'm not really worried about that. Uh, I just, I also have that second oven. It's kind of little, but I bet I could also do, an, uh, like, I could probably do three at a time. The little ones for baguettes. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I also, ladies and gentlemen, if you've gone to my Instagram, you've seen this. I bought these cake pans that it's eight little tiny cakes right so they're like an inch and a half deep maybe three inches by two inches right so they make these little rectangular cakes found out i can make sourdough rolls that are about 95 grams in weight and put them in there they rise just fine and they're glorious they are crispy on the outside they're super fluffy on the inside and i didn't have to do anything else I just scale them out, round them off, let them sit for about a half hour, make them into torpedoes, put them in there, and then I just wait until they rise and I bake them. And they're amazing. I made some that were stuffed with cheese and my homemade roasted garlic powder. Those were amazing. Like, And it takes way less time to bake them because they're smaller. right? I have four of those pans. I could be knocking out 32 of those things at a time. <laughs> and they take up they're, – they're easier to manage. They're very easy to have be consistent, which is a huge deal with this. And uh, they don't stale as quickly because as soon as you cut into a loaf of sourdough bread, yeah, yeah. it starts to stale. You're going to eat one of these rolls in one sitting. And so the other seven of them can hang out for a couple of days before they start to go stale. Those things are delightful. Nice. All right. We should probably get off of that because this, all, this is still fictional, right? I still am yeah, not yes. making anything for sale. <laughs> uh, let's do one more thing. Do you want to finish on mac and cheese? Yeah, we can. All right, let's do that. I'm gonna get rid of all my other tabs because I don't <laughs> care about we didn't get to. Tupperware right now. Yeah. 
All right, Steve. We were talking about mac and cheese two weeks ago, last week? Uh, uh, last week, I think, because you sent me the the article shortly, I think shortly after we spoke. Right, because I keep, I keep finding out mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell aside. <laughs> I keep finding out that there's all this shit that I never learned, and obviously you can't know everything. That's fine. Really important shit that I never learned. And I'm learning now. So I only learned in the last year or two that mac and cheese, as we understand it in this country right now, was developed by an African-American chef who was a slave for a while. And that shit, just, I never knew that. Because Thomas Jefferson's wife took credit for it. Right. And so Steve and I were talking about that, and I could not remember the name of the chef. And that was my bad. James Hemmings is the name. It's down a little ways, maybe halfway for in the Epicurious article, because it goes into the way ancient ancient history, Roman times stuff, right. before it gets to, uh, you know, uh, it, most, most food will have ancient roots of some kind. Um, so uh, it, it gets, gets to that uh, before it gets to James Hemmings. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So we cannot say mac and cheese was invented by James Hemming. Quote from this article on uh, Black History Now. A master chef whose family had the unfortunate luck of being one of the most famous in African-American slave history. We use the word unfortunate because, sadly, a handful of the Hemings were property of Jefferson, from his sister Sally, who gave birth to many of the former U.S. president's children, to his white half-sister, Martha Wales, who was Jefferson's wife 19 years before he became president. Uh, James would become Jefferson's property starting at the age of eight years old. So we cannot say James Hemings invented mac and cheese. Mac and cheese goes, as per the article Steve sent me from Epicurious, way the fuck back to, like, Greece, right? And Roman times, where they were making something like, more like a gnocchi, but they were making a, a pasta that was being mixed with butter and cheese. Fine. If you are a human being in any situation, you're going to eventually figure out on your own that pasta mixed with butter and cheese is really pretty good, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) However, the important part of this and the thing that I did not know is that as we understand cheddar, mac and cheese, that's creamy, that's made with elbow noodles in this country, all of those details come to us from James Hemmings, who was the chef to Thomas Jefferson and to whom credit was not given until very, very recently because uh, Jefferson's wife took credit for it and she wrote a, a cookbook and it was in there as her recipe. Because why would she? Why would she give credit to their property as having developed this thing? Yeah. And you brought up a really interesting uh, point because the Epicurious article is co-written by Adrian Miller, who is a fellow who wrote a book called Black Smoke, which is all about the African-American... Uh, influence on American barbecue and he also has a Netflix show called High on the Hog which I highly recommend which is where I learned about this mac and cheese thing you brought up a really interesting point is this why mac and cheese is a classic side to American barbecue I don't know the answer to that my gut says yes my gut says absolutely that's why yeah, I mean, it just makes sense in, in, intellectually, if nothing else. Uh, two, and two things that are highly, highly influenced um, and um, should be credited to the African-American community um, in, in America. Like, we wouldn't have barbecue as we know it or yeah. mac and cheese as we know it without the African-American community um, in in the U.S. Um, 
because uh, mac and cheese is a very, uh, as we know it, as we're thinking of it and conceptualizing it as Americans, is a very American thing. Yeah. Um, Kraft macaroni and cheese, even even though Kraft was Canadian. Um, that was another thing that I learned today, <laughs> that Kraft mac and cheese, I always knew about Kraft dinner as being a Canadian thing. I thought that was their shorthand for Kraft mac and cheese. It is, but it's because they made it, right? Yeah. Uh, what was the fucking guy's name? Uh, His name is know, like Ju- James Kraft or something, right? Yeah, I always think like Julius Irving Kraft. Um, <laughs> it, uh, let me see, here it is. Uh, James Lewis Kraft. There you go. With a K, right? And so you brought up uh, an excellent point, which is, why isn't there a Canadian sports team known as the Canadian Cheesemakers, which is what he was. Uh, yeah. And I said they could be called the Crafties, which would be perfect. Yes. <laughs> there should be Toronto or whomever where was he from in Canada I don't know just as Canadian um, but uh, and then he brought it to Chicago first it said toward yeah. the end of the Great Depression he introduced his craft dinner marketing it from his base in Chicago and it took off while like uh, wildfire but it never would have had not all of the um, the without the sort of so um, uh, James Hemmings or J- James yeah yeah um, the other thing that was is fascinating about him is he he met the same tragic end that so many chefs do. Yep, dude died of uh, alcohol poisoning. Yes, before he because uh, um, Jefferson he'd he'd been freed in 1789, is that when it was or no it was 17, 1796 is when he was granted his freedom, and then in 1801 Jefferson became president. He attempted to contact Hemings to invite him to assume his role the role of chef at the White House. But before he could do that, Hemings had died of alcohol poisoning. And it's just like, ah, uh, um, the profession is replete with tragedy. Yeah, and say that tracks, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so because then he wouldn't have been around to be sort of uh, proselytizing for mac and cheese or, or distributing it or, or keeping it alive. Um, but it, it was sort of a part of the African-American community. And so a lot of um, African-American women especially um, – were the ones that sort of carried the torch for mac and cheese and and um, were responsible for it becoming sort of the ubiquitous thing that it was yeah uh, to allow craft to capitalize on its popularity and also then the uh, all of the industry that was around for during World War one and World War two that was canning things and making things you know great depression era stuff that would have been like look this is this will last forever. Um, on your shelf, yeah, um, and it's cheap or whatever. Um, so he then translated it into something that was packaged and ready to go. Uh, it's fascinating, and it's such a classically American story that an African American fella developed this recipe. His white owners took credit for it, and then a Canadian put it in a box and sold it back to us. right like of all the twists and turns that this concept had taken from ancient roman greece all the way through it's so funny that it was like well the english started making this uh, thing right and it was closer to a gnocchi at that point with a cream sauce on it because for a minute there i don't know if this is still the case i haven't been to great britain in a long time for a minute there everything in british food had to have just like this enormous heavy sauce on it then the french kind of took it on and fancied it up and took it back to Great Britain because in that article that you sent me, they said, well, of course, it was more French because all the best chefs in England were French. (laughs) And then James Hemings, during this tour of of France with um, Jefferson as an enslaved enslaved person, 
saw that and brought it back and it's also that classic story of you you have a thing that you want to make and you find yourself in a place where you can't get all the ingredients so you make it in a way that is close but has the ingredients you find to hand so the one that he saw the one he likely saw in paris was like a white wine cream sauce with gruyere cheese sort of grated on top and he got back and they found out that it was like well you don't just have gruyere cheese lying around but yeah. <laughs> cheddar cheese was widely available so it changed to that like that's how we get to powdered cheddar cheese sauce in the craft mac and cheese box is that right yeah that uh, somebody seeing a thing and going how do i make that at home or how do i get close right and that's always been a tenet of good cooking is being able to get close to what you want to make using what you find around you yeah and then dying of alcohol poisoning those are the two yeah. big tenets of, of cooking <laughs> Unfortunately. Well, I mean, and that's, that's why there are culinary uh, anthropologists is that what they are yeah yeah. Um, because these, I mean, it's the same with language, right? Language, the, the English that we speak now is vastly different from Shakespearean right, times. Right. Um, and, and, um, the even different than British English, despite being the same distance away from Shakespearean times, because we're separated by the Atlantic. Um, so language changes over time and yeah, dishes change over time too. And for many of the same reasons, it's just, uh, yeah, you, you get, um, you bring the dishes you're familiar with to a new place and uh, you don't have the same thing, so you recreate them using what you have, and they become something distinctly uh, of that region. Yeah. Uh, despite having foreign origins. Well, right, and you see a lot of that with Americanized Chinese food as well, where there are things yeah. that were, like, you and I, not knowing, innocently ignorant, we don't know that when we order certain things at, quote, Chinese restaurants, that those were developed in San Francisco, like, in the... 30s and 40s right like we don't know that we assume yeah. it's chinese food because it says chinese food on the menu but those are very specifically made for american market with ingredients they could find at the time and they like sweet and sour chicken is i think the classic example of that where it's just like that's not how they make it in china they don't make anything like yeah. that you know but yeah. that's what we think of as that and there are dishes that are now they've been around for so long they are authentic to a cuisine that only exists here in the states as fake Chinese food, <laughs> you know, yeah. that sort of thing. Same thing with like Hibaritos. Those, that's a Puerto Rican sandwich was invented here in Chicago, right? Cuban sandwich invented in Miami, but now it's been around so long. It's its own thing. It has its own history. Yeah. Well, Kayla and I ate at the place where cashew chicken was invented when we were doing route 66 and I forget where, maybe it's St. Louis. Um, but, uh, I mean, and that can legitimately be called Chinese food in that I believe the creator was ethnically Chinese. There you go. Um, so it is Chinese food, but not Chinese food like that's served in China. Right, right. <laughs> and, and and that came about because he's like, what do people here like to eat? They like gravy. I'm going to make a thing with gravy. Yeah. And that's how cashew chicken came about. It's <laughs> like a brown gravy um, uh, with cashews over, you know, with rice and, and chicken. So he, he tried to create something that people that were where he lived would eat. And um, and that's how cashew chicken was invented. But uh, uh, yeah, it's it. They don't. They're not going to serve it in China unless it's American American Chinese food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so well. And so this that's a perfect segue into the last bit of this article from Epicurious you sent me. Quote: Macaroni and cheese has so completely assimilated into the American foodscape that many Italians today, because I guess this is my aside, because it's pasta. People do sort of 
connected to Italian food, right? Yeah, yeah. Many Italians today dismiss it as a grotesquely caloric Italian-American invention. Perhaps they would do well to brush up a bit on their culinary history. So even the Italians are like, fuck mac and cheese. That's not it for that one, right? Whereas yeah. we love it here and we're like, yeah, it's great. Jefferson's wife invented it. And she did not. <laughs> you know? yes. and also, it's very fraught to ever use the word invented with food, right? Because you, yes, you're yes. not. Maybe you're developing a recipe. Maybe you're popularizing a recipe. Maybe you are utilizing a new ingredient, but you are never discovering and you're never inventing. Those are just not terms that make sense in culinary because by now there's a finite number of ingredients and a finite number of ways to put them together it's all been done if you have a better way to make a pasta dish with cheddar cheese and a cream sauce fine you're not inventing a fucking thing yeah you're developing now, a recipe oh, you should get credit in that regard you're not inventing anything so uh stick with me on this uh-oh um so in 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 a sense um, and and I'm, this is tongue-in-cheek, so don't, don't take this seriously at all. But <laughs> in a sense, this was Italian cultural appropriation. <laughs> um, but it wasn't really, because what this is, is so the macaroni and cheese we have now is, is you're right, it's not uh, it, it invented per se, but what it is, is it is a recipe that has sort of let, percolated through um, years of uh, both what can be um, acquired in the States and also, um, years of experience of, uh, the African-American culture in the States. Um, and, and, uh, because we wouldn't have it without, um, we wouldn't have it without Italy, France, England, (laughs) um, and all of those chefs that were playing with stuff. We wouldn't have it without Hemmings. We wouldn't have it without all of the, uh, African-American communities that were, um, producing it and keeping it alive and passing right. recipes down from generation to generation or the Canadian guy who packages it into a box and um, so that any household in America could buy it for 50 cents or whatever and throw it on a shelf and have it um, and uh, feed kids. And it's, I mean, go walk into a restaurant in the U.S. right now that doesn't have mac and cheese on the menu. Right. Um, a- any restaurant that expects children to come in has mac and cheese on the restaurant. I mean, out oh, on yeah. the menu. Um, because it's a it's a pleaser for for kids. Some of them make it better than others, but it's it's uh, it's on the menu. And so uh, I uh, I don't know if percolate is the right word, but that was the, the, what was making sense in my brain was that there are all these people involved, and and so the recipe starts here, but it kind of filters down through all these people until it becomes this thing that we know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I would I would honestly connect that to musical covers, right? So I would say that mac and cheese going from Italy, where this article says, here was a dish that had been served on the tables of the Italian aristocracy, even to popes, right? And you, to go all the way from there to craft mac and cheese, it's, so there's a a band called Tears for Fears. Shame on you, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't take them seriously and love them as much as I do. They have a song (laughs) called Mad World, which is glorious and sad and, and, and slow and all this. It was covered by a fellow named Gary Jules for a movie called... Donnie Darko. The Gary Jules cover is terrible, and the movie Donnie Darko is also terrible. Somebody <laughs> then covered the uh, Gary Jules cover of Tears for Fears' song, Mad World, and that cover of his cover was actually better than his cover. I would argue that's how Mac and Cheese got to where it is. People covering that recipe. And in some cases, making it better, yeah. and in some cases, making it craft Mac and Cheese, which, by the way, I eat. Right? Like, it is, no joke, 
the best 10 minute meal you can make for your kids when you're really tired, right? Yeah. There was one thing that I never would have thought about, which I do want to highlight that comes out of this article. Um, Quote, in the black community, macaroni and cheese maintained multiple identities. The quick kit or ready meal version was a reliable side dish for weekdays or could easily become the main meal with some key additions. The elaborated Sunday gathering mac and cheese has attained such a hallowed status that one must present personal references from trusted family members before being allowed to cook it for an important occasion. (laughs) So we're talking, you can eat a box of mac and cheese for dinner, you're fine. If you go to grandma's house on Sunday and you're making a baked mac and cheese that's got like a layer of breadcrumbs and shit on top of it, you better be on your game. And I never would have thought about that. That's adorable and I love that, that there's like... Uh, layers to how that particularly cultural food is appreciated by different groups of people in different settings. Love that. Yeah. Well, in 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 some ways, um, or in a lot of ways, it's it's like pizza, right? Because you can go and you can get the uh, the uh, Tostitos uh, frozen cardboard with cheese and sauce and cube pepperoni on it. Sure. From from Jewel and microwave that and eat cardboard with sauce on it. Yeah. Um, you can, and then there's a just there's a you know a, a scale there even within frozen uh, pizzas. Oh, yeah. You can get a really expensive frozen pizza that turns out reasonably well, or you can make pizza yourself, or you can go to a fancy pizza pizza restaurant. So there's this huge range of pizza, and the, the, the mac and cheese is the same way. There's a huge range. Yeah. Uh, because where you go, um, whoever's house you're at, if their folks are making pizza or if you're making pizza, um, is going to be different than you know down the street. So if someone's making mac and cheese uh, not from a box. But that's going to be different than, you know, um, uh, the, the, your, your friend down the road who's making mac and cheese not from a box because yeah. there's just so many different permutations of it. Um, yeah, and, yeah, I love it. Some of them, some of them are sacred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's worth not discounting because it does have sort of this low class, it's in a box and you're just going to eat it, sort of a, a stigma to it. But it is worth not discounting something like this because of the history, because of the uh, permutations that it has seen. And because, yeah, you can go to a restaurant and get white cheddar duck confit mac and cheese with sliced truffles on it and spend like 38 bucks. And it is still at its heart roughly the same thing, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's the, like, so um, when you do that, though, I think we're, we're, um, the the realignment that needs to happen is you don't eat that thinking well this person has elevated mac and cheese right what you what you need to think is when you get the craft box you need to think well craft de-elevated mac and cheese <laughs> um and and again i eat craft mac and cheese as well or or you know mac and cheese out of a box i'm not i'm not saying it's a terrible product that should never be eaten i'm just saying that that it, he he um, made it utilitarian in a lot of ways. Right. Well, he, this article even points that out. Uh, quote, at the same time, mac and cheese was also the stuff that filled school lunch trays and saw families through rough times. Uh, hard agree, right? You can buy yeah. a pack of five boxes of mac and cheese for like six bucks. That will feed my family each, like, that'll feed my family three meals, right? That's not to be sneezed at for anybody who has, like, I've told this story before, but this uh, is worth Go, going back to the idea of taking something that is a problem and making it into its own solution. When I was a kid, we were not terribly well off. My mom never let us eat in the living room. However, when we were having pot pies, 
she just made this shit up. When we were having pot pies, we could eat in the living room. It was a treat for us, right? Those <laughs> pot pies were 50 cents a piece. She could feed the whole family for $3. That is a huge win planning-wise and financially for her because she made us look forward to the cheapest fucking thing she could yeah. possibly feed us <laughs> because she tied it to, ooh, we get to eat in the living room, right? Like, yeah. you have to make choices like that. And is mac and cheese going to poison you? No. Is it the best thing you could possibly eat? Also, no. But in some cases, you got to do what you got to do. There is a spectrum yeah. there. Yeah, and and on that spectrum, I would say there are some cheap foods that are better than others. And yeah. mac and cheese is, I think, it's a solidly like solid good. It's a solid good. Yeah, I mean, you could you could probably find one that's really bad. And so, uh, when it term in terms of elevating the food, I think you can elevate craft mac and cheese. Yeah. But mac and cheese as a concept and as a food, I think, especially in terms of this article. Um, it's really hard to elevate it because it's been all over the spectrum already. Yeah. Um, so well, you can elevate your own mac and cheese. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing is that you have to consider the term elevate, which I more and more I'm, I'm sort of against that term because yeah. a really good baked mac and cheese, right, in like one of those tin trays that shows up at a picnic, it, there's no need to do anything else to it, right? And if you yeah. are getting a duck confit white cheddar truffle mac and cheese at a restaurant it's probably not mac and cheese you're probably looking at a really good pasta dish which is something else right it's a different thing because it's not like there's an essential something to a mac and cheese which i think if you quote elevate it too far it's like when we talked about elevating pasties something about pasties if you make them too good, they stop being pasties. Part of yeah. the charm of a pasty is that you're like, this is not great, you know? But individual parts <laughs> of it can be great. Like, you eat a pasty and you're like, actually, the crust on this is really good. Or you go, actually, there's venison in this. This is really good. But at no point are you going to be like, fuck, I'd pay $40 for this. No. Then it's not a pasty anymore. It's some sort yeah. of a bespoke hand pie or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I would I would argue the same thing is true of a really fancy mac and cheese, you know? It's it's ceased being mac and cheese at that point. And that does not decrease the value of actual mac and cheese. It just means that that's a different thing. Yeah. Well, I think I think the the elevated term is something that um we've only had since the advent of food television. Yeah. Um because it's a lot of the a lot of it's one of the things that a lot of the contestants say to try to sneak something by a <laughs> yeah. judge. Oh well, this this is mac and cheese, but it's elevated um, or deconstructed is the same thing. That um, and it taps into the comfort food idea, which is I've made yeah. this thing that your mom made when you were a kid, but I made it way better. It's like, well, okay. So you're trying to tap into nostalgia at the same time you're trying to show off. I get that. I do that shit all the time. But there's a certain cockiness to that that I am starting to resist and, and yeah. reject. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The only thing you've elevated is my hatred of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in some cases, it's it's got a little shimmer of uh insult on it which is like yeah. this is what your mom would do if she was good You're like what? right whoa 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 <laughs> you know yeah. leave my mom out of this man she did fine i could be your mother <laughs> <laughs> right that's a whole different thing right <laughs> like a cooking show where the entire goal is to try to get the pa- uh the judges or the panelists to uh completely reject their own family <laughs> next on stockholm syndrome <laughs> <laughs> A cooking show set in Stockholm where you're <laughs> trying to just gaslight the judges into liking things that are terrible. Yeah. I kind of like it. <laughs> I kind of like it. All right, Steve. I feel like that's all that I have energy for today. <laughs> to be honest, I still have not. I'm going back to, uh, what's it called? 
periodic fasting. Oh, yeah, intermittent? Intermittent fasting. So I've yet to eat anything today, and I'm a half hour behind what is the threshold for me to start eating. So I'm getting a little <laughs> twitchy. But I will say, I just drank like three cups of this Mexican Chiapas coffee from uh, Taste of Colombia, and it is so good. Uh, so I feel really <laughs> good about my choices today, but I do need to go eat something. And that was about half of what we were going to talk about today, but we got stuck on my car buying issues and took up a bunch of time. So Yeah, and gardening. And gardening. Anything else you wanted to talk about before we wrap up today? No, I'm good. Except now I have a hankering for mac and cheese, but I'm not going to make <laughs> mac and cheese. I still have to go grocery shopping, and I don't have any milk in the house. So I should probably get 18,000 cows instead. Um, I know where you can get some cheese. <laughs> We shouldn't be laughing about this. That's a no, lot. It's, it's not human life, but it's a lot of loss of life. Yes and, yes. and income. There were 60 people that worked at that place. What's happening to them now, right? Like, yeah. even yeah. if insurance covers rebuilding that farm, those folks are legit out of a job right now. All of them. Yeah. Man. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, once again, and this is all going to be in the show notes, but if you want to see the further gardening and baking and stuff like that that I'm doing, you can find me at Chef Ben Randall on Instagram. We have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. If you have uh, long-form kind of stuff you want to talk to me about, definitely hit us up uh, in the weeds wbr at gmail.com. And Steve runs a website for us. In the weeds wbr.com. And if you'd like, if you have something dried in your house that you want someone to make a sausage out of, oh yeah, contact there you go. Peter at Crooked Farm Charcuterie <laughs> and see if he has any recommendations. I kind of want to make my own barbecue or just like steak rub you know like montreal steak oh, seasoning yeah and so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna take some of the bell peppers that i grow this summer and onions and garlic and i'm gonna smoke them and then dry all that and then grind all that up with salt and pepper and uh garlic powder and i think i'm gonna work on my own steak seasoning nice so that's definitely gonna be a thing and that'll cost a million dollars for a tiny little jar <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're uh, elevating everyone's steak, yeah. so oh, it's going to be worth it. That's true. Elevating steak left and right. Uh, you'll have to get a taller table to sit at to eat that. <laughs> so if anybody on, if anybody out there knows about a good anti-caking agent for powders that is, like, not harmful, that I can reliably and fairly cheaply get a hold of, my roasted garlic powder is getting really pretty clumpy, and I'm not a huge fan of that. Uh, I would love to know that information as well. So feel free to reach out to us. Uh, yeah. Steve, I think that's all I've got today. Cool. For In the Weeds with Ben Randall, I am Ben Randall. And I'm Stephen Cadwell. We'll talk at you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>